Kieran. I'm Hannah. This is Kitchen Table Cult. Where two quiverful escapees talk about our experiences in the cultish underbelly of the religious right. Hi, Kieran. Hi, Hannah. I think this is really exciting. We have been working together since, like, 2006. Yeah, I think... It's been a while. Yeah, the first time I remember running into you was when you had your um, politically incorrect blog. Oh, God. Yes, I remember that. (laughs) I remember that. That was after my Zanga, which was worse. Right, I guess I ran into you on Zanga at some point, too, through all the people who had done Team Pact and all that. Yep. And then there was the... ROC that started out of that little Bible study in that chat group, and that's the first time I interacted with all you guys. Yes, yeah, I found ROC through uh, the revolution and a bunch of people's blogs, and then I was like, oh yeah, this is cool. And then I oh, met one right. of the they people had that, at Team like, blog database, didn't they? Yes, a blog network, I think is what we called it. A blog network. Yeah, and also a podcast network at one point. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, wow, yeah, everybody had podcasts. We were podcasting before it was cool. I remember mm-hmm. when Audacity was in beta, and that was when I was using it. Yep, that's that's exactly when I was using it, too. I, I mean, I did my podcast, I got back from France, met you guys, and that was in 2005, and then 2006, I decided to start my little literary podcast. And uh, it turned out to be too much work, and I had to fight people for the computer at home because we had one downstairs one that computer. everybody shared. Yeah. One computer. Yep. In public, so everyone can see what you're doing all the time. We had, uh, what is it, safe eyes? We had safe eyes on ours, but I figured out how to hack it really easily. We had John Hagee's safety network thing filter. I don't remember what it was called. It was like Bible something. And then I started doing NCFCA and I couldn't Google anything because it was censoring all of it. So my parents had to disable it so I could actually do research. And then we were just like, meh, we'll just put safe search on Google. It's fine. Yeah. (laughs) So um, to our listeners, welcome to the Kitchen Table Cult podcast. Yay. 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 (laughs) (laughs) So, um, Kieran, you want to explain why we're calling it the Kitchen Table Cult? Well, because most of our school and learning was done around the kitchen table since we were homeschooled. And And most of the brainwashing happened around the dinner table. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Where all of the indoctrination (laughs) and teaching and cult-like infrastructure happen and revolved around the kitchens in our parents' homes. Or really just our parents' homes entirely, but the kitchen table is a good metaphor. Yeah. And um, the word cult is kind of contentious. I know a lot of people are uncomfortable using that term. People who grew up the same way we did or grew up in my church or in the same um, series of movements, they, they don't like the word cult because it, it brings up associations of people living together communally, um, follow, following a charismatic leader. And a lot of these groups didn't really do that, and a lot of these families didn't really have that. Um, but when you look at the DSM definition 
um, or the, the terms, the definition of a cult given by like sociologists. Um, they also call it high control groups or high demand groups. And pretty much every piece of that criteria was met in both my home and family life and also in our church. My parents actually left churches because they couldn't run them. My parents created the cult out of our family yeah. after being in an actual cult. Yeah, my, my parents joined an actual cult because it happened to agree with everything we already believed. And when they started deviating from that, we left. Yep, that was pretty similar to my experience. And my parents were like, well, we should be controlling this group. And then the cult leaders were like, no. <laughs> and my parents were like, fine. And then continued to build their own. Yeah, my father was basically like, mm, these guys are getting a little bit demanding in terms of the legally binding agreements to not sue the church or each other in the church without permission from the church, et cetera, et cetera. I don't like people telling me what to do. This seems sketchy. I'm out. That was actually the reason that my parents never got into ATI beyond like the first introductory course. Oh, yeah, same. Yeah, because my parents were like, no, I don't want someone else to tell me what to do or how I should dress. I want to be the one making those rules. Yeah, my, my father was like, they seem kind of controlling. I'm not interested. Yeah. Which is ironic. So um, why do we want to do this podcast? Because I answer the same questions all the time. Everybody asks me questions. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you and I both do a lot of interviews um, for our work with CREG, the Coalition for Responsible Home Education, and also talking about quiverful life and being a quiverful escapee. We've also written a lot about it outside of that extensively. Yeah. And um, given what's happening right now politically and in terms of our nation and the news cycle, a lot of the stuff that we grew up with is incredibly relevant to how we got where we are today. I feel responsible for a lot of it sometimes because I was like, <laughs> oh, I remember how all these things we were talking about when I was a teenager and now I'm watching it come into fruition. And I'm like, oh, that's OK. <laughs> I feel like I can say something about this now because it's happening. It didn't stop when I left and I now have the ideas to stop it. Well, we were we were trained in it to be part of it, and we, uh, uh, yeah, we defected. We I don't I don't think we're necessarily complicit, but we got all of the information. We got the the download, and we were expected to be really upstanding, intellectual, well-spoken Republican politicians or politicians' wives or thought leaders. Um, yeah, I mean, that's what NCFCA and Team Pact were trying to do. Now, yep. you want to give our audience a little spark notes on NCFCA and Team Pact? Yeah, so uh, NCFCA stands for the National Christian Forensics and Communications Association. It's basically the homeschooled Christian speech and debate club that uh, competes around the nation. And they teach people how to speak persuasively and debate in hopes of being good, upstanding Christian statesmen um, and taking over the nation for Christ. Uh, Team Pact is very similar to that. Or compelling missionaries. <laughs> or compelling missionaries. Or 
the wives of people who do this thing. Pastors' wives. And well, pastors' wives. wives. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Team Pact is very similar, but what they do is um, they have classes in most states, not every state yet. California is like the holdout still. Um, but it's, it's and functionally take, a civics class, a high school civics. It is a civics class. Yeah, and they take homeschoolers and whoever can get off of school um, around the Capitol buildings in their state. They teach them how their state capital works. They teach them how to pull bills, what all that means. There's constitution drills where we learn the constitution and where to find the rules in the constitution, which is going to come back to bite Is them. that like Bible drills for constitution? Yes. Oh. It's, there's a question and you have to look up which section or shout out which section. I had it memorized at one point and I won oh and everybody loved me because it was great. Nice. Yeah, I had like five pocket constitutions at any given point. I wasn't allowed. So I was that kind of nerd. I wasn't allowed to do um, NCFCA debate or Team Pact. Um, my family let me do the speech class portion of um, NCFCA once, but I wasn't allowed to do the debate portion because, uh, according to my father, I was quote unquote already good enough at winning arguments, and he didn't want me to be better. The real reason is we probably just didn't have money for it, and they also didn't want to have, you know, the unpaid help out of the house for X hours a week doing outside classes. Um, and then Team Pact was also similarly billed as like, oh, it's too expensive, we can't afford it, and your father works for the government, so you don't need a civics class, you can just sit with him and talk. I got to Team Pact because there was scholarships that I managed to apply for nice. and get accepted to. But I was I actually kind of ran a small bit of the Team Pact circuit when I was involved. Uh, I was on my way to being one of the interns. Yeah. And I ran through the Georgia political machine through Team Pact. That kind of helped me start there. And so then I wound up doing a lot of other local races because I had connections uh, through Team Pact and people knew me. Mm -hmm. now, so I was like weirdly politically involved for being a girl at the time. Right. And I, <laughs> I mean, we were very well informed about like current events in a certain way. I mean, we weren't actually well informed, but we thought we were. We were very um, actively like reading Drudge Report and um, World Magazine and following like the federal political plot process in terms of um, the pro-life movement and you know various abortion laws state to state and various homeschool laws state to state. So there was a whole lot of political awareness um, in my world and we, we went to like protest an abortion clinic in Richmond at one point and like did the March for Life at various points but my mom would have Christmas parties that were dedicated to the crisis pregnancy centers in our area and was basically a glorified like fundraiser yeah. for CPCs so the reason this world that we grew up in was so focused on these issues was there's this whole um eschatology that was driving it and eschatology is 
the fancy word for end times theology. Um, what did your family believe? That the rapture would come at any point. Well, they prayed for the rapture to come at any point. They really wanted to be raptured very much. Mm-hmm. Their entire existence, and then through that, my entire existence, was based on Jesus coming at any point. And that led to a bunch of really fun mental health things, but also a bunch of like bad decisions that my parents made because they weren't planning on being on the planet for more than a year or whatever. I haven't really ever asked my parents how they feel about the fact that they've, you know, lived this long and looks like the world is not going to end anytime soon. When I was like going to get married when I was engaged, my parents were really against it. And then they told me that well, maybe the rapture will come before then. <laughs> was this before you ran away slash eloped? It was It was either just before or just after. I think it was just after, because it was when I was engaged. It was okay. after. That's so funny. Yeah. They were like, maybe the rapture will happen. But they'd also told me that before for other things. They're like, well, maybe the rapture will happen, and then we won't have to deal with this. And I'm like, that's I think my not a thing. I think believed in the rapture. It was definitely taught in the church's in California that we attended when I was a kid. Um, and like our family, my family like stockpiled like water and canned and dried goods for Y2K. We were eating like the freeze dried apple yep. chips for like three years afterward. Um, I think my mom probably would, would have been more of an adherent to the idea of the rapture. I don't really remember my dad talking about it. I, persecution, however, the anticipation of the tribulation was definitely a driving factor. There was all this this mindset of like America is in a state of crisis and downfall, and we are going to be persecuted for our beliefs like tomorrow. Like this is going to happen, so you yep. need to be prepared to give your life up for Christ and live as if like you're going to be martyred next week. Yep, my parents were the same way, and. All of their decisions were really, really short term because the rapture could come at any time. And really, and every like everything we went through that was a result of a bad decision they made was persecution and meant that we were going to be rewarded. And also that we were like, you know, just another sign of the end times were coming soon because we were so persecuted because of my parents' bad financial decisions. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So what was what was. um? What did it mean to your family to be American? I remember you had, like, the American flag all over your blog. Oh, everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. My parents thought that, like, I mean, they really believed that America was built on Christianity, that God ordained this nation to exist, and we exist to serve their very specific version of God, Mm -hmm. and that aligned with Rush Limbaugh somehow. (laughs) Um, So they thought that, like, we were supposed to be the city on a hill. My dad was, uh, like, he voted for Reagan. Uh, He really bought into Reagan's, like, theory and the way he presented America. So, like, that carried through my childhood. Yeah, my parents were extremely, extremely into Reagan's idea of America. And somehow that was also the equivalent of what God wanted America to be. And therefore, that's what we should be working for. That makes sense, because the moral majority was founded around getting Reagan into office. And so the idea of voting for him and his 
existence as a president being a Christian political statement was very important um, because that's how, that's how the moral majority got out the vote. Like once they made it like this, it is Christian for you to support this guy. Then they could get um, they could get the evangelicals out to vote for him. Yep, and that was even. What's interesting is that was even before my dad was a Christian. So, like, my parents didn't start out wanting to be the best Christians. They didn't start out coverful. They didn't start out with the idea of homeschooling. That all came later. But the sort of fundamentalist approach and... I guess, way of interpreting the world that was already there for them. Whatever it was in their life had already placed that outlook and then Christianity just took it. Gotcha. Um, so I, my parents were also, they call it, considered themselves first generation Christians. They grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. My grandparents on both sides were fairly liberal and nobody really understood why they went as conservative as they did. Um, and, I mean, they got caught up in the Jesus movement, got born again, and decided that they really needed a break from their past and wanted to be completely different people and live radically for Jesus. So they went into getting married with the idea of we're going to let God plan the size of our family. We are going to raise these children for Christ. We are going to homeschool them. I mean, I remember being like six or seven and telling one of my neighbor kid friends, like, I'm not allowed to date. I'm going to court. And I had no idea what that even was. My parents introduced me to the concept of courting when I was 10, maybe. That was when they'd heard of it. Um, It took them about that long to get there because they joined a cult when I was seven and they were there for two years and then the cult introduced them the cult is what introduced them to the quiverful movement and the cool fun thing that my parents did where they believed doctors are literally oh, of the devil yeah. so yeah so that's another, <laughs> another thing that like really comes into this is like suspicion of authority so my my parents like my dad works for the government and yet also very strongly distrusted the authority of the government my mom is a nurse and they vaccinated us, but there was also definitely an emphasis on like, well, but we can also have faith for healing and like pray over you and anoint you with oil and maybe the Holy Spirit will descend and you won't have cancer anymore or whatever. Um, right. That's, that's how that works. Um, but yeah, my family, my family didn't really buy into Christian dominionism as such. Um, not in this strict sense. They definitely had a, a dominionist outlook um, they definitely believed that, you know, America sh- had been a Christian nation and should be a Christian nation again. Um, I know some groups believed that, like, if America is retur- quote unquote returned to being a Christian nation, then Jesus will come again. And so that's why they're working toward that. You get the Auburn Auburn Avenue theology, I believe, is the group that um, explicitly states that. And my parents weren't that that extreme, but I definitely was around a lot of people who were. Um, and that was like why they had so many kids was to raise more good Christians. Yeah, my parents were here for the taking over the world by outbreeding the enemy, so to speak. They didn't subscribe to any 
like prediction of when Jesus would come because of that one verse in the Bible that was like, no one knows the day or the hour. <laughs> so whenever anyone predicted when it would happen, my parents were like, it's not happening. My then dad would do the same. Because we're not supposed to know. Even though he, he, he definitely believed that Y2K was going to be like cataclysmic. I don't think he believed that was going to be the return. Yeah, my parents believe that the rapture yeah they believe that it will happen in our lifetime yeah or their lifetime uh, but they didn't know when but they don't have any plans of like retirement or any longevity planning because they think that it's pointless so, so they how just does don't the trump apocalypse play into the way we were raised how like how does this feel to you way too familiar it feels way too familiar. It feels like everything we ever want. It's, yes, and that's what's horrifying, is it's everything that my parents and everything that the community that I was raised in, everything, the groups that I worked with, was organizing for. And when uh, when Pence was picked as the vice president, like, Pence is literally friends Pence with HSLDA, is, is like which is... the quiverful wet dream for a president. Yes. Yeah. And he's just biding his time. Like, they want him to be there. They want him to be the president at Anytime some point. Anytime anyone point, talks like about just impeachment, I'm like, that's nice, but get Trump. Like, keep Trump in and yeah. he comes out first. Like, I, isn't, isn't yes. that what happened with... This is what I tell people, too, and they're like, you're nuts. And I'm like, no. He got his, his VP out first because his VP was more compromised. I think... Oh, maybe. I, I, I could be wrong. I mean... I don't remember. I, audience correct me if you want but um yeah i th- i think that's what happened and i feel like that it needs to be the play here again we need to get that need, it needs to be that way not be president because he's lawful evil he knows what he's about he knows how to play the game he's got a plan right and he's he he presents nicely he's not just a terrible awful human being all the time yeah true. or at least seeming he knows how to seem reasonable. It's the most dangerous and insidious part because he seems reasonable. He can easily dehumanize people and while think, being nice about it. Trump doesn't have that tact. I don't think he's persuadable. Trump is incredibly pliable. Trump, I feel like, is just chaotic neutral. Like, like he's yeah. a mess, but he is not able to consciously create the kind of damage that Pence could do. Or is doing, even, and we just don't know about it. Um, well, let's take a quick break, and um, then we can do our proper introductions so you guys can get to know us for who we are and know how we got to um, where we're at, how we got out. Here. <laughs> Welcome back, and um, I think normally we'll, we try to have a guest on or um, answer a listener question, yes. but today we're going to just introduce ourselves so you know a little bit more about your hosts. Hooray! Hannah, tell us about yourself. Hi guys, my name is Hannah Ettinger. Um, let's see, I was the oldest daughter in a quiverful family. I'm the oldest of nine. Um, we were homeschooled K through 12. Um, and I mostly stayed at home helping my mom. I didn't really have a social life because I was obligated to help raise my younger siblings. Um, my family was involved in 
Calvary Chapel, Vineyard, Sovereign Grace Ministries Churches. Um, and when I was 12, we moved from California to Virginia to join Sovereign Grace Ministries. Um, and that's where my family really went hardcore with teachings about courtship, being a stay-at-home daughter, submission, complementarianism, headship, all that stuff. Um, I went to college, but it was kind of treated lightly. It was kind of a fallback option, just in case one day my future husband wasn't able to support me or died. And the idea was I was going to get married, and that was like why I existed, because I was going to get married and have babies and um, raise more good Christian warrior kids. And I went to a super conservative college, but it was kind of a perfect halfway house because it was a lot more liberal and more normal than home. Like people actually dated and like sometimes they swore and like you didn't have to like regulate modesty stuff all the time. Um, But it was still fairly conservative. Reagan was still the fourth member of the Trinity and we had chapel twice a week. um, So it felt pretty safe. Um, met a guy there, got married, um, but we had to we had to court, and as our courtship progressed, my dad got more and more controlling and manipulative, and so we got married pretty quickly to like help me get out um, because my father believed that he'd transfer his authority from himself to my husband over me at that point. So that was our out. Um, and then my husband and I left Sovereign Grace Ministries together. Um, found ourselves becoming more and more liberal and um, we got divorced and suddenly the world was wide open anything was possible and um, yeah since then I've come out of the closet and by dabbled in polyamory worked um, lived abroad in the Peace Corps um, lived in Kyrgyzstan for two years um, worked for Democrat politics and have been focusing on healing from PTSD um, I'm 29. I live in Roanoke, Virginia, and right now I'm in school for an MFA in creative writing at Hollins University. Um, I'm writing a memoir, but I also write poetry, creative nonfiction, and fiction. And um, Karen and I work on the same organ- for the same organization on occasion, um, the Coalition for Responsible Home Education, and I do policy advising for them. How about you? Um, I'm Kieran Darkwater. I'm the oldest of eight. I have seven younger siblings. Uh, I was also the oldest daughter in a Cooperful family, and I was homeschooled from kindergarten until I graduated when I was 15 because my own school was taking too much time away from raising my siblings and running my parents' home and doing all of the things that the eldest daughters are supposed to do in Cooperful families. Um, The day they graduated me, they told me that I had learned everything I needed to be a wife and mother, and there was no point in teaching me anything else. I hadn't learned algebra. I was going through, like, all of the things that I needed to do to graduate, and I was like, oh, man, I'm still behind. And then they're like, no, no, you're good. You don't need math. It's fine. Um... So I uh, describe myself as an educationally neglected homeschooled student because my education was entirely based around the gender I was assigned at birth and not actually preparing me for life as an adult human being on my own because I was supposed to not have autonomy. I was supposed to be a mother and grow more children to take over the nation for Mm -hmm. God. Um, And in that vein, I was involved with Team Pact, Generation Joshua, 
NCFCA, uh, and briefly CFC. Even more briefly, Awana when I was a oh, yeah, small child. Oh yeah, Awana for like five um, years. <laughs> yeah, and all of these organizations are based around training homeschooled students, Christian homeschooled students, to uh, take over the country and bring Christian theo- theology and theocracy to the U.S. Um, and turn it back into God's city on a hill. You know, Generation Joshua, and you want to um, unpack what that was a little bit more? I think that's interesting. And I wasn't directly involved in it, but... Yeah, so Generation Joshua is a sister organization of, or a child organization of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, HSLDA. And HSLDA is why homeschooling law in the U.S. is sort of like the Wild West right now. Uh, They worked to legalize homeschooling in all of the states in the 80s-ish or 70s. Um, And now they work to keep it unregulated. That way the government, again with the fear of government, stays away from these good godly homeschool families who are just having infinite numbers of children to take over the they country. They make it a God. religious liberty Michael issue. Michael Ferris, yes, they believe that uh, parents' rights are he- like unalienable, God-given, divine right of kings level of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that parents have authority over their children well into adulthood. Uh, like specifically parents, fathers have authority over their daughters until their daughters are married. HSLDA is a huge sort of, or the people who run HSLDA rather, are huge proponents of headship theology. Um, Michael Ferris is extremely into that um, and also started parents' rights organizations Mike to Ferris, do that. Did he, was he the one who started Generation Joshua? Uh, yeah, sort of. Him and Ned Ryan, who don't, no longer works there, uh, founded Generation Joshua. And Generation Joshua is basically also a program that Sherpas kids through and to Patrick Henry College, which is the school that HSLDA runs, that gets Christian conservative kids HSLDA into founded. politics. And is, quote, indirectly. no longer involved, right. but they have their offices in the same building. But they share an office yeah. in the same building. I've been there. I saw the HSLDA Uh, office in the Patrick Henry School office. (laughs) They are indirectly related, but run by the same people. There's a ton of overlap. Generation Joshua was designed to get um, high schoolers really excited about bringing their faith into politics and then funneling them into um, future enrollees for Patrick Henry College. Mm-hmm. And then after that, into positions of government. There were a bunch of people who were staff members in Bush's cabinet who came through PHC. Uh, PHC elected a bunch of people, or like helped get a bunch of people in offices all over. Uh, I feel like they had a bunch of recent graduates running during the Tea Party mm-hmm. time. Uh, it was it was weird because there was a point where I was like I know of all of these people One that are running in all of these races. Senator or state legislator in Oklahoma. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So after. Um, so they have this program. After Gen J, where did you go? What happened to you? Uh, after after Generation Joshua and Team Pact and all of that, basically after my parents graduated me from high school, I started courting a friend of mine. Um, at the time, and my parents really wanted me to be married when I was 16. Was that a financial decision on their part? 
No, no. My mom has this fantasy where she and I would be pregnant at the same time. And the only way for that to happen was for me to be married at 16. So that way, when I was 18, I could have a baby and we could be pregnant at the same time. Yeah, it's not even a religious thing. It's just a weird thing that my mom had. Pregnancy fetish, got it. I was, my mom wanted me to like, yeah. She wanted to live vicariously through me. So she wanted me to be married when I was 16. And it was also like this gap window of time where she had just had a baby and wasn't pregnant. So it was the perfect window of time for me to leave before I ceased being a human for the nine months that she was pregnant again and became a broom with arms. Your mom was always really sick when she was pregnant. So you had to run the house. Yeah, her pregnancies were terrible. And they just got worse over time because, again, my parents didn't believe in doctors. So my mom had untreated medical issues while pregnant that she had no way of getting help for. And so she was basically on bed rest for nine months while I did everything from running the household to now, educating my siblings. your parents then broke you guys up. And then what? Yes, because I didn't get married fast enough. So I was like, I don't want to be married at 16. And they were like, that's not allowed. And then my mom got pregnant again. And after my mom got pregnant again, they were like, well, you've experienced love. So now you're good on that. And um, since you don't want to like be married right this second, since you're a minor, you just can't and you can't talk to each other and you can have no more contact and you just have to go back to being the surrogate mom that you've been since you're eight. Because now I'm going to be deathly sick for nine months and you have to help us. Exactly. Um, and I was, I was like, um, no, I know how to use the computer. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I then plotted for, they broke us up when I was 17 and a half, so I only had six months uh, to kill until I was legally an adult and could escape and mm -hmm. have no repercussions ish, no legal repercussions. They couldn't bring me back. Um, so I planned and I worked with Hannah and a bunch of our mutual <laughs> friends and orchestrated an escape on my 18th birthday. I started, um, I was so detailed that I started carrying around a stuffed messenger bag with me we three trained. months ahead of time. We were so that way when like I left... Military levels of prepared for anything to happen at any given time. So, of course, you were prepared. Right. Obviously, I was ready for this. So, I, I started carrying around a fake stuffed bag with me everywhere. That way, when I left on my birthday, mm -hmm. it wouldn't be suspicious. Um, I had... Uh, I didn't have my driver's license at the time, but since I was 18 and my parents were going to need someone to drive people around, I managed to convince them to uh, let me get my driver's license. So that I did that uh, the month before my 18th license. birthday. Also. And then, because what you need when you get your driver's license is your birth certificate and your social, I just kept those. And I didn't put them back where my mom kept them. And when she asked me about it, I was like, Oh yeah, no, I have it safe with my stuff. I'll put it back later. Key, and I just key note it. here: if you so I, I kept all my vital records. And you want to escape? Have a copy of your birth certificate and know your social security number, because even if you don't have an ID, that will make all the difference. You need both of those things for anything. So if you have them, keep them. And any school records. And take them with you. Even if it's a weird word document that makes <laughs> that no you sense. You probably wrote at 3 a.m. when your mother was yelling at you. <laughs> yes. 
my transcript is a mess. Half of it is in A's and half of it is in like numbers. And it's just, I don't know what my I, mom was doing. She doesn't know what she was doing. I'm not sure if my mom just forged my transcript. I'm not sure if I ever actually had grades until, like, I got a transcript. And then I was like, oh, look, I got an A in all these classes? Wow. <laughs> yeah, I got an A in math. And I'm like, I have questions. I, I know I put <laughs> I have serious questions. That, but I didn't think, like, I deserved it. So I wasn't sure. I don't know. Like, I haven't looked at my transcript in a long time. So where, what are you doing with yourself now that are you still married? No. So now I'm divorced. Uh, yeah. Since, since leaving and escaping and getting married, I moved to the West Coast, got divorced, started transitioning, started school at Laney College to be a machinist because I was never allowed to work with tools or build anything because I was a girl and a uterus made me made that impossible somehow. So now I'm making my own lathe tools and bending metal to my will and it's fine. Um, And when I'm not at school doing school, I'm organizing to get all gender bathrooms near my classrooms and institutional queer support. And I'm organizing in the East Bay, because I live in Oakland, California, to build more housing so anyone who wants to live here can live here. And I work with East Bay for everyone, and we're the cool Yimby kids. Um, And then I also have been, I'm a founding board member of the Coalition for Responsible Home Education, and I'm the tech director. And I'm starting the California chapter, and we work to make homeschool safer for students through policies, research, information just answering a bunch of questions yeah giving resources to people that's awesome yeah crhe is really fantastic and i a very needed group because i think before they existed there wasn't really any homeschools homeschoolers for homeschoolers organization that was having alumni and people who had been homeschooled speaking to the interests of homeschooling and homeschooled parent, homeschooling parents and homeschoolers. Yeah, CRHE, to my knowledge, is one of the only, I think we are recently not the only organization organizing around the interests of homeschooled children, but for a long time we were. Yeah, and I think it's important to note that, like, to contrast us with HSLDA, which has been around a lot longer and is fairly well established, HSLDA advocates on the behalf of homeschooling parents. And that's it. To keep them out of trouble, pretty much. To keep the the state off their back. And we are interested in the rights of children and protecting children from being abused. And so that's why we're trying to fill that hole. Yes. What do you do for fun? I play video games and I walk around the lake at Pupper O'Clock because I don't have a dog and I like watching other people's dogs. Um, So... Whenever, like between the hours of four and eight, it's pupper clock on Lake Merritt, and it's everyone has their dogs, and it's wonderful. That's what I do to relax. I have two cats, and I have a burgeoning houseplant addiction. I have a garden out on my deck that's just, um, I've got a little deck area that's full of potted plants, and then inside I've got you know, vines and succulents and who knows what going off everywhere in every corner. I'm going to be very sad in the winter because I don't get as much light in my house as I would like. So I'm going to have to like pick and choose which plants make it through the winter. Just get like shade friendly plants. I do. I have a bunch of them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah. And I, 
I like binging Netflix, like the new uh, Sharp Objects, and I've been watching Pose, and these, uh, I've been watching Claws. It's like real, um, like dark comedy, intense series, TV series. I've been slowly working through and with an E. It's real it good. Seems like it's really good. If you, I watched the first episode and the way they depicted PTSD was really fantastic. That was like, that was what sold me on it. it was like, oh, you understand this, okay? Yeah. And then the period episode was really hard, but really good. I was like, I feel seen right now. I understand all of that. You have to watch that. I don't. Which episode is that? Yeah, it's like the second or third one. It's real early. I had to like not watch it again for another week and a half because I was still like processing it. <laughs> have you it watched good. any Hammy's Tale? I have not watched it yet, but I've read the cliff notes of it and I started trying to read the book and at some point I was just like, I lived this. I know what happens now. <laughs> yeah. I I have watched the whole show and I, I find it really comforting because um it once you have been gaslit by authorities who are telling you that what you see as problems in reality aren't real or aren't serious, when you see that reality being presented as very real and very serious, it's very reassuring. Because it's like, oh look, I wasn't crazy. I didn't make any of this up and you know, my reality was maybe a little bit worse in this way or that way. And so, like, I feel less guilty for, you know, having PTSD now or whatever. This is this is why I should watch it. I just need to re-up my Hulu subscription. <laughs> uh, listeners, if you want to donate a Hulu <laughs> subscription to us, you can sign up to our Patreon. That's yes. for us to be able to <laughs> keep watching Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> Please, thank you. Next week, I think we'll talk more about um, current events and the Supreme Court, what the retirement of Justice Kennedy means for Roe v. Wade and how we feel about that and how that relates to everything that we grew up with. Um, And we'll be taking some listener questions and um, going forward, we'll, we'll kind of like break down some of these topics, like what is quiverful? Um, what is courtship? Why do we believe that our families were cults? What is like this whole homeschooling thing about anyway? And why did our parents do it? Um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How did we get out? How did we get out? Yeah. So if you have questions, um, you can shoot them to us on our website. Um, what's our email address if people want to contact us? It is kitchentablecult at gmail.com. Yay. You can follow us on Twitter, although we haven't been very active yet. And uh, We have not been active at all, but we could be. <laughs> we could be. We might be. And donate to our Patreon so we can keep doing this and also watch Handmaid's Tale and bring you more good content. All right. Thanks, guys, for joining us. Until next time. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.